Lord, you are indeed a great God. Lord, we said in the opening, not to us, dear Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. And yet, Lord, you have chosen to remember us. You have chosen to bless us and to esteem us and to love us. And Lord, we love you for it. And we pray, God, that you would open the wonders of your word uh, to these little ones and to us as well, that we might behold the wonders of your grace and your love and your truth, and that we might be a people bold for your kingdom, and that we would demonstrate to the world that we have a great king. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the Gospel of Chronicles. The Gospel of Chronicles, or Chronicles, is the very last book in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and uh, in our English Bibles, which is in the middle, and the Hebrew Bibles is at the end because it was the very last book that was written in the Old Testament period. And it was to sum up the history of God's people up until that time. And uh, it was given to them to give those people and to us as well, a hope for the future in the face of a politically dark time. And we need such hope. Chronicles is about the retelling of the gospel of God's salvation to an enslaved people who returned to their homeland while still under foreign rule, where God reestablished them as his chosen people, as special treasure, even in the face of their chronic rebellion. Chronicles is about the story of how God raised up a great king in David who foreshadowed the promised coming of the king of kings. And Chronicles is about giving the people of God something to shout about, something to get their praise on. Chronicles is about the call to worship. Last week, Pastor Stan revealed for us uh, the brief episode, only one chapter dedicated to Israel's first king, Saul. As mentioned, there are about 20 chapters detailing the painful rise and the demise and the fall of Saul in 1 Samuel, while there in 1 Chronicles we find a review of that in just 14 short verses, which reminds us again that 1 Chronicles does not focus on the sin and failures of people, but on the grace and mercy and faithfulness of God, whose covenant promises and plans will not be deterred or derailed by man's sin. We have a God who in his great love keeps no records of wrongs. But here in chapters 11 and 12, we find 87 verses. 87 verses focused on commending and honoring David's mighty men. That's a lot of material. Why did the chronicler give so much attention, so much recognition and detail to these exploits, uh, these fighters and military men? We're going to consider that as we look at chapter 11. Verse 1, Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, 
And David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed king David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said, Whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, went up first, so he became chief. And David lived in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. And he built the city all around from the millow in complete circuit, and Joab repaired the rest of the city, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. This is where the Lord will be looking at the other portions uh, in the later part of this, set, uh, this message. But Proverbs 27 says, Let another praise you and not your own lips. Someone else, not your own lips. My father-in-law, Donald Dawkins, uh, was a war hero. In 2009, at the age of 85, 64 years after the end of World War II, he received the highest honor of the French government uh, that the French government gives to non-French citizen, induction into the famed Knights of the French Legion of Honor, the designation shared by a select group of war heroes who helped liberate France. He was part of the army that stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day in southern France, who froze in the snow-covered mountains forests of the Ardon, and who fought in the bloodiest battles in the trenches of the Western Front. Donald Dawkins uh, witnessed mortar shell land uh, in foxholes killing men in his platoon. Some, he said, lost limbs to the bouncing beddies or German mines that popped up into the air and detonated. He saw soldiers break down in tears, unable to carry on. He said, I was just an ordinary soldier, just 20 years old, a rifleman fighting with my buddies in the foxholes. In just seven weeks of combat, our platoon of 38 men had only one original member left, me. Everyone else was either killed or wounded. He remained in combat despite being shot in the left arm. He said, we lived like animals hacking slit trenches in the frozen mud. He was forced from the front lines in the winter of 1944 because of frostbite and gangrene. He said, I woke up one morning, feet frozen like stumps. They carried me to an aid station. The nurse cut my shoes off with a razor blade. In December, they amputated. He lost all 10 toes permanently, lost feeling in his left leg. He, like other heroes, considered himself lucky. He said, I got to come home. We didn't think of ourselves as heroes. The best soldiers in my platoon never got to come out of the foxholes. It feels right and proper to acknowledge and to commend such sacrifice and courage, doesn't it? There's something deep in our universe that wants to commend the courageous. And here in 1 Chronicles 11, we see God commending the courageous of his kingdom. Here we see God commending the courageous of faith. Hebrews 11, as we heard, talks about this kind of faith. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. That is what the ancients 
were commended for. They were given honor. They were given good report. Hebrews 11 is one verse after the next commending and publicly honoring people who demonstrated their faith in, in concrete ways. It's God's hall of fame. And we heard a portion of the list in our scripture reading commending not only individuals like Moses and Gideon and Samson, but the whole army that marched around Jericho and the whole nation of the Israelites that walked through the Red Sea. But besides men, it also included women like Rahab, the prostitute who welcomed and protected the Hebrew spies. I have, I have four daughters, so knowing that there are women heroes of faith is a big deal. One of their favorites is the tent dweller Jael in Judges 4, who took a tent peg and hammer and took out Israel's enemy king, Syria, with one blow. It's good to know that there are different ways to demonstrate one's faith. But I believe that Hebrews 11, as well as 1 Chronicles 11 and 12, gives, gives us names and stories of faith to encourage us to be people who pursue and strive after practicing a courageous faith. There are many forces that want to drive us to seek praise and commendation from wrong sources. Jesus said to the religious leaders in John 5, How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from only God? Here is the reality. We have a deep hunger in our souls for affirmation, for honor, for glory, for praise. And Jesus confirms this drive, this hunger. Some people can't get enough praise of people and chase after it, but such praise seeking will exhaust and ultimately destroy a person. The whims of fickle people is a cruel slave master. But there is one who offers praise, whose praise we were made for, whose praise flows from an eternal love for us, from a father who beams with pride over his children, who plasters our feeble, fumbling works of mustard seed faith on the walls for all to see like toddlers scribbling color lines on a shredded, torn piece of grocery bag that a mother attaches to a refrigerator and says, isn't it beautiful? I love her so much. She made this just for me. We might not think much of it, but God treasures our little tiny acts of struggling faith, and he saves them for eternity. A crown that will last forever, 2 Corinthians 9 talks about. Hebrews and the Chronicler gives us these names, these stories and exploits of faith and courage that we might seek after eternal commendation and praise from God. And what does he commend? God commends the courageous who fight for the enthronement of God's king. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word given by Samuel. First Samuel account says David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. Yet David was actually anointed by Samuel about 10 years prior as a young shepherd boy, the youngest of Jesse's son, and he soon had some holy anger against this guy named Goliath, the giant Philistine, when the armies of Israel were shaking in their boots. But he went there with his little sling and a few stones and took the giant out. However, soon David's courage incited the jealousy of King Saul, 
and David found himself running for his life. A significant portion of the Psalms that we treasure, uh, David wrote when he was a 20-something young man on the run as a refugee. The Psalms are his prayer journals to God, often in the depths of life. He came to realize that the only safe place to hide out was in the Philistine territory, and those 10 years were a very desperate time. Maybe it was a prolonged boot camp and character preparation, spiritual formation for Israel's greatest king. But in 1 Peter 5, it says, In the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And so after God removed Saul, David was enthroned as the king of Israel. But why did all Israel come to make David king? Well, of course, it was a fulfillment of God's promise through, through Samuel. But David also captured the hearts and the allegiance of God's people, even Saul's military officers. It says that they gathered to David in Hebron, all Israel. And he says, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In the past times, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out the, and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said, You shall be shepherd of my people, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. David earned the trust of, of their allegiance because of his character. David was the one who led. He was in the midst. He was not an armchair, a military guy that was out disconnected from his troops, but he was in the midst, and he attracted warriors. And so over the course of time, he attracted the loyalties in the heart of all the people. Even the relatives of Saul, the Benjamites, defected, as 1 Chronicles 12 says, and the Gadites, and the men from Manasseh. And it says there in verse 22, day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in his ranks. And it says in 1 Samuel 18, it says, But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. One of the great stories of David's uh, military wisdom and strength and also his humility and spiritual characters in 1 Samuel 30, the Amalekites had raided and burned the stronghold that they lived in in Ziglag and took away their wives, their sons, and their daughters. And David's army came back to their city, and it was burned down, and all their sons and daughters and wives were gone, and they went into great distress, and they actually were talking about stoning David. And it says, there's a great verse that says, but David found strength in the Lord his God, and David sought the counsel of God, what should we do? And he says, go and pursue the Amalekites, and they did, and there were 600 men, but 200 were so exhausted, they just stayed back in the camp with the, with the women and the children, and the other 400 went after the Amalekites, and lo and behold, all the women and the children were, were still alive. They were able to capture uh, them and bring them back and, uh, and, and destroy the Amalekites, and it was a great plunder. And when they came back, the men who fought, they were some, uh, what they were called the rabble element. They didn't think it was right for the guys that didn't go out and fight uh, to get any of the plunder. And David entered into this great family quarrel, and he says in verse 23, Families, don't do this sort of thing. No, no, my brothers. 
And David broke up the argument. You can't act this way with what God gave us. God kept us safe. He handed over the raiders who attacked us. Who would ever listen to that, this kind of talk? And he says, the share of the one who stays with the gear is the share of the one who fights. Equal shares, share and share alike. And from that day on, David made that the rule in Israel. And when uh, he returned, he sent some of the plunder out through the neighbors, and he said, this is a gift from the plunder of God's enemies. David was very wise. David was a God-centered strategist, a compassionate, humble, a gracious leader. Besides being a fierce warrior, he was God's tender warrior, a poet warrior, and the people loved him for that. And all this, he was a man of great character. Teddy Roosevelt said, intellect is a great thing. A sound mind is a great thing, just as a sound body is a great thing. But more than body and more than mind is what we call character. That is what counts ultimately with the individual and with the nation. A man who possesses intellect greatly developed without having his moral sense equally developed is a more dangerous wild beast. Sound morality and good principles count for more than intellect. But David was more than a man of great character. He was a man of great spiritual depth. And even though, as we know, he fell into great sin, he was a man who knew how to repent and humble himself. And so all Israel rallied around David to support and to fight for his enthronement. But not only does God commend those who encouraged and fought for his enthronement, but God commends the courageous to fight for the establishment of God's city. And so we find this charge. The Jebusites said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took up the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. And First Chronicles doesn't present some of the trash talk about the Jebusites. In, uh, first, second, in first Samuel, or 2 Samuel 5, the Jebusite said, David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought that David would never come in. They had been occupying that city for 200 years while Israel had occupied the rest of the country around it. It was like, David, you're just a little flea. You're, you're a mama's boy. You, you, you can't do nothing. Go back to your sheep. But... Nevertheless, it says, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion. But it was Joab, it was Joab, the son of Zeruah, who stepped up and did what no other Israelite warrior or military operation could do. And uh, in these couple verses, it talks about Jerusalem in different ways, besides being uh, the city of Jebus. It was called Jerusalem, which means city of peace. It was called Zion which means citadel or fortification, the hill of Jerusalem. It was called the city of David. Joab is acknowledged as the first among David's warriors who executed that mission for David, and David rewarded him by making him the chief and commander of his army. It was a huge honor, and Joab occupies a huge part of David's military leadership. And yet, while Joab is commanded or commended for this the commendation is centered around the securing of Jerusalem, of Zion, the city of David. What's the big deal about this city? Jerusalem 
is not only the city of David, it is the city of God. In Psalm 46, it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The city of God is the place where God dwells. In Psalm 122, in the ascent, David says, I rejoice with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There are the thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Can you sense the praise around Jerusalem, the God's dwelling place? It is the center of worship. God is fiercely in love with his Jerusalem. It's very precious to him. He talks about it as the apple of his eye. It is the city of God. It is where the temple of God is. It is where the center of the worship of God is. God said to Solomon about this place, I have heard the prayer and the plea you've made before me. I've consecrated this temple which I've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Jerusalem is huge in God's heart. What is Jerusalem now? What is Zion now? What is the city of God now? Hebrews 12 tells us, But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You've come to the church of the firstborn, he says. Who are the church of the firstborn? The firstborn are those who have trusted Christ. And because Jesus was the firstborn son of God who accomplished redemption through his blood, all of those who trust in him receive the same position as being the firstborn sons of God. We are the church. We are the bride. The Jerusalem today is the bride of Christ, is the church of God. The church of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now, what exploits is God calling you to do to strengthen this bride of Christ? What exploits? Think about it. What are the exploits that God is nudging you? You know, David says, who is the first to go into the city and capture it? And the question is, I think, is what is God calling you to do? What is he calling me to do in this season? I, uh, I understand that we need more community group leaders. Maybe God's nudging you to say, you know, I think I need to step into a role to help provide more spiritual care for those that God is bringing to, into his kingdom. Or maybe God is nudging you to step up to become an officer, an elder or a deacon. We need elders and deacons. Maybe God's calling you to uh, fulfill a role in, in the worship servants. We have different places that people need or maybe it's in stewardship, or maybe it's praying that God would expand his kingdom and to multiply his bride in other places. I don't know what God's nudging you to do, but I do know that God still is calling his faithful people to exploits 
for his kingdom and for his city that he loves. He says to Peter, the chief shepherd, when he appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. You might be hesitant to get connected to the bride of Christ. It's not a perfect bride. It has a lot of flaws and faults. It's easy to sit back and criticize the bride because it's so messed up. Don't get too close to this bride. She might injure you. Keep your distance. But God says, you love me, you love my bride. (laughs) Join me as I make her more beautiful and you will be transformed in her. But finally, God commends the courageous who fight for the advancement of God's kingdom. Now these are the chief of David's mighty men who gave him strong support. And then verse 10 and following gives us a report of the names and the exploits of these mighty men. These mighty men, it's called the Gibberim, the, 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 uh, the champions, the, uh, the warriors. And these were the mighty men that gave David strong support in his kingdom. They helped expand and secure David's kingdom. And he talks about these different ones. He talks about Jashabim, the Hakamite, uh, Hakmanite, the chief of the three. And he wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. And this guy was a war machine. 300 at one time. I mean, what? kind of, what would that look like? And next to him was the three mighty men, Eliezer, son of Dodo, the Ahahite. He was with David in Pastamim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley and the men fled from the Philistines. All the rest of the army around him fled and it was just him standing alone. So he stood in the midst of that plot with the Philistines coming down upon him. And he killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Eleazar means uh, God is my helper, and God certainly helped him. And then the three, there were the three of the 30 chief men. So one was Jashabim, Eleazar, and this other one is not mentioned here, Shemam. Uh, and he apparently did a similar thing like Eleazar on, in a field of lentils, according to Second Samuel 23. Apparently, you know, these uh, fields of all these crops uh, were treasured things to sustain the, the people, and, and he held that. Well, these three went down to the rock of David in the cave of Adullam when the army of Philistines were in capturing uh, Bethlehem, and David just kind of, you know, in the midst of his own kind of weariness, he just said, oh, that someone would give me a water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. This is where David grew up, Bethlehem. He knew that water was good. By the way, I think Baltimore's water is overall a great water. You know, I really like Baltimore's water. You know, I go to some other places and I drink their water. I said, man, I'd really like Baltimore's water. And uh, let's bottle that anyhow. David, David was like really thinking about just that refreshment of Bethlehem. And these guys heard this, and they just decided they're always up for a challenge. Oh, yeah, we'll do this. All three of them, they tear through enemy territory, through the enemy lines. I mean, he had to go to a well, okay, and they had to, like, get this water. It wasn't a simple task. And then they came back and gave it to David. And he, I mean, he didn't ask them to do that, but they just were ready to 
do whatever his pleasure was. And, uh, and David was overwhelmed by their deed, and, uh, but he said, I can't drink this. This is sacred. You know, how can I do this? And so he poured on the ground, really as a sacrifice. He would not partake of that. This is the kind of leader that David was, and this is why these men loved him so much. And then there was Abishad, the brother of Joab, the chief of the 30. He wielded a spear against another 300 men and killed him. Um, and then there was Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant warrior, a doer of great deeds. He struck down heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Okay, a lion in a pit on a snowy day, wrong place, wrong time, wrong company. You know, I mean, but Benaiah was a fierce warrior. And then he says, and then the Egyptian had in his hand, he says, he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits, saw the Egyptian had a spear in his hand like a weaver's beam. But Benaiah went down and with, uh, to him with a staff and, and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Uh, it says that David made this guy his bodyguard, his chief bodyguard. I would too. David Jones, in his book, David's Mighty Men, describes David's entourage as a magnificent, special elite force of fearless warriors. They were extraordinarily strong, courageous, unflinching, brave, completely committed to David, and they were the most fierce and dedicated warriors that ever lived. And Jones said this, they were a combination of combat commandos. Stealth Rangers, Navy SEALs, Green Beret, Special Ops, and Delta Forces who had acquired the skills of battle demanded to survive and conquered in hand-to-hand warfare. They engaged in clandestine operations and were often outnumbered by staggering odds pitted against them, yet they stood their ground time after time on the fields of battle. They were the last men standing. Quite a remarkable group that he lists, and you know, from verse 10, actually, for the next 70 verses, the chronicler mentions these exploits, and he lists a whole bunch of names. He doesn't tell all the exploits, but he tells all of these, he gives the list of all of these names of all of these warriors because they were important, because God wanted them to be named individual. Individually, they were important to God. I went to, uh, in the Westminster Abbey, the Westminster Abbey is, is a place that really contains just uh, tombs of famous people. There's kings and queens and their, their courts, and, their, and it has famous, uh, there's David Livingston and famous missionaries, but there's also uh, famous musicians and artists and, and writers uh, that are listed there. And after walking around and just one name, famous person after the next in kings and queens, you start feeling like a real commoner, <laughs> you know. It says, who's ever going to get in here? But there is, uh, in the center of the nav, what is uh, a tomb for the unknown warrior, uh, an unidentified British soldier killed in the European battle during the First World War. And um, at the top of it, it says, the Lord knoweth them that are his. They might not know who this British soldier is that represented all of the soldiers that died, but God knows the name. God knows every name of his people that demonstrated faith for him, and God remembers every deed that a person does in his name. 
Matthew 10, Jesus says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. You know that God, that Christ saves up every act of faith that you and I do on his behalf, and that the Revelation 14 talks about how uh, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. It says, yes, they will rest from their labor for their deeds. Their works will follow them. The works don't save us. Our deeds don't redeem us. But God uses them as a means of eternal commendation by faith. Uh, this past week uh, on Wednesday, I was here, and uh, Ann, uh, and, uh, Ann Johnson and her daughter Emma came uh, to deliver a hot meal for about 15 of the young boys in the Acts for Youth program that was here. But uh, there was a confusion about who, who, you know, what was happening. And so nobody was here, and so she stood around for a while, and then she said, I guess I must have, you know, there's miscommunication. She actually went all the way home. And then uh, the leader came and was looking for the food, and I, you know, called Anne. I said, well, they actually, it is going on. They are here. And uh, she was so gracious. She came all the way back. That's an hour. That's 30 minutes each way. So she did a two-hour, you know, trip just to provide meals. You know, she didn't complain. There was no, uh, you know, probably nobody really even knew what had happened. But I can tell you that that act of faith, and that's an act of faith that is happening, I know, many, many times over by you and by many of the people that practice their faith in vital ways. And God remembers all of that, and he saves all of those things up. So God remembers, and he commends. We, we open the worship service to say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your faithfulness and love. And we have this picture in Revelation when the crowns are given to the elders, and they get these crowns, you know, these promised crowns that uh, Peter talks about and Paul talks about. And in the face of Jesus, this great king, there was only one thing they could do, and that was to cast these crowns down at his feet and said, but you are worthy because it was by your blood that you purchased men and women from all nations. <laughs> you see, that's the only thing we can do with our crowns and with our rewards, but God is so passionate for us, and he gives us these rewards. This is the kind of king that we have. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know what a mighty God is? Is the El Gabor. It is the mighty warrior. We have a mighty warrior God who fights for us. Let us give ourselves to him. Let us seek his kingdom in our lives. What is it that you are struggling to overcome? What is the fear that you are struggling, that God wants you to face with courageous faith. It might be that he's calling you right now to like trust Jesus for your life and for your salvation. That might be the biggest fear that you, pr you presently have. Can you surrender? And I would encourage you by his grace 
to surrender and to trust and to believe him. But maybe there's something else you're afraid of. Maybe there's a broken relationship or maybe there's a conflict that you're avoiding. I encourage you to name it, to commit it to the Lord, and to engage that in faith. Don't let anything hinder you from extending uh, his glory in your life and in, in the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us this passage of David to remind us uh, about your, that you have a king, that you have a kingdom, and that you have a bride. Lord, help us to be a people that are courageous uh, to enthrone you in our own hearts, in our own lives, to, to love your bride and to be part of making her more beautiful. And Lord, help us to be faithful in our world, in our workplace, uh, before our neighbors, uh, to be a people uh, that uh, extend your kingdom. And we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to just, I'm going to do a benediction. You know, benediction means blessing. You know, a blessing, this is what God wants to do for his people. He wants to bless his people because he's such a great and loving king. And now may the peace of God, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, may he equip you for everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.